Good morning again to you all, and a happy new year. If you came in late, my name is Jake Patton, one of the pastors here, and that was uh, Jimmy Green, one of our ruling elders who is helping to uh, lead us in worship this morning. One of my friends uh, commented on Twitter this week, he said, this Sunday is, is National Assistant Pastor Day. And it's funny because all the senior pastors are on vacation this week, and so all across uh, the nation and our country, assistant pastors are, are filling the pulpit, and that's not a complaint, by the way. Really glad to be here, and I'm really glad you're here too, especially, again, if you're, if you're visiting. Uh, please do stick around afterward. We'd love to shake your hand and introduce ourselves to you and tell you more about the church and, and our city if we can. Um, we've just wrapped up a series um, this fall on the Ten Commandments, and we spent four weeks uh, covering Advent you know, over the four Sundays in December. And before we jump into another series uh, this winter and the spring, we are going to spend the next two weeks in Ephesians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn there together. Ephesians 3, we're going to start in verse 14 and end in verse 21. Ephesians three fourteen through 21. If you don't have a Bible... Fear not, uh, we've printed for you in your bulletin, so it's uh, in your worship bulletin as well. Um, while we're getting situated, something happened this week in my study that I, I, I don't think it's ever happened to me before, and, and here's what happens. Usually when Brian or I or Tim or Adam, one of, our, one of your pastors, are, are studying to prepare a sermon, we'll, we'll always consult commentators who write commentaries on books of the Bible. And sometimes we only need a few. Sometimes we need, you know, 10 commentaries, just depending on the topic. And so I read several this week, and I found that several of the commentators I was reading were all quoting the same guy. They all were quoting this same bishop. And he had made this comment about this prayer that we're going to look at this morning in Ephesians chapter 3. And so my takeaway was this. If, if guys I respect all respect what this one guy says about this prayer. Like, I better pay attention. This guy has something pretty valuable to say. So I want to read what he wrote. Uh, his name is Bishop Hanley Mool. I want to read what he said, what he wrote about this prayer, and then I'll explain it. So here's what he says about this prayer that we're getting ready to read. He asks, who has not read and reread the closing verses of the third chapter of Ephesians with the feeling of one being permitted to look through parted curtains into the holiest place of the Christian life. I'll say that again. The feeling of one being permitted to look through the parted curtains into the holiest place of the Christian life. What, what is he getting at there? Well, if you imagine the Christian life as an automobile, what Paul is going to do with this prayer is he's going to walk to the front and he's going to throw open the hood. He's going to let you see what's going on in simple but beautiful words, what is actually going on in the Christian life, what God is doing, how he's enabling, how he's empowering, how gracious he is. Again, simply so we can understand, but beautifully. Um, these words are good news. So what's under the hood of the Christian life? Uh, let's find out together. This is Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth, 
and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do take for granted this great gift of your word. And it's like gold that's in a treasury. It's like honey on the tongue. It's like balm to the soul. And so, Spirit, as we venture into these words that you inspired long ago, uh, would they strengthen us? Would they edify us? Would they reveal you to us? Reveal us to ourselves? And give us strength and hope in the life and in a world that is full of darkness. Make it so, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. A couple years ago, I learned something new about myself, my physiology, my biology. I went to go see my doctor, and he said, we need to give you a physical. It's been a while. So I said, all right, let's do it. So I had to do the whole fasting thing you know, for 24 hours, and then I went in and, you know, had the, the vials of blood drawn, and said, I will call you with the results in the morning. So, uh, the next day rolls around, doctor calls and says, great news, levels are fine, everything looks great, except for, except for one thing. And before he told me what it was, he asked a question. He said, um, and it was about this time of year, kind of like January, February, he said, you know, you experiencing maybe a um, maybe a small measure of, of winter blues, maybe some fatigue. Are you kind of tired, you know, loss of energy? And I thought, well, gosh, you know, I'm, I'm in my late 30s. My, my T levels aren't going up. They're going down. I've got four children, work full time. Like, isn't everybody? Isn't everybody just a little tired, have the, have the winter blues? And he said, the reason why I'm asking is because your vitamin D levels aren't even registering. They're so low. And I went, Okay, well, what does that mean? He said, well, that's usually where we get a lot of our energy, and especially in guys. If we don't get vitamin D, uh, we can feel melancholy. We can, we can lose energy. Uh, we can experience uh, fatigue um, earlier in the day. And so that really piqued my curiosity. I said, okay, let me, let me figure out more. So what I learned was this, is that, you know, when we look at foods, we've got milk that is fortified with vitamin D. There are vegetables that have vitamin D in it. Actually... The way to absorb vitamin D, um, we, we can't do it through our stomachs, through our digestive system. We can with some, but not all of it. The primary way we get vitamin D is through the sun. And I'm going to butcher this, and I'm doing so with doctors in the room, and I'm kind of okay with that. I'm going to summarize kind of like what I read and what I found out, right? These UVB rays that come from the sun, they hit our skin. It's absorbed through the skin, and it passes through a number of organs, and that turns into energy. And that's where we get a lot of our energy from, is from the sun. It's not something we can produce internally. It has to be externally acquired, right, through another source. And if we'll listen, what Paul is telling us about this Christian life is, is the same thing, the very same pattern, is that when it comes to a Christian's true strength and energy, it can't be internally produced. You can't do that on your own. It has to be provided externally. Acquired externally. And for the Christian, he says, that's, that strength comes from God himself. He's the one who strengthens. He is that outside 
source. One of the first things we heard about Greenville before Paige and I and the kids moved here was that Greenville is a very hardworking town. And it was built on hard work. And if you want to stay here and if you want to thrive, man, you've got to be a rolling stone. You have to be a self-made man, a self-made woman. And you can't be passive. You've got to be active. And, you know, we see the hashtag being thrown out a lot. You know, yeah, that Greenville. We're kind of proud of our hard work. And I want to say this first. Like, that's not a bad thing. Being a rolling stone, being a self-starter, being a sort of, that's not a bad thing. But there is a way to do this. And tell me if this doesn't just nail us. And, by, and I mean us, not y'all, us, myself included. There's, there's, there's part of that that we kind of like. Because it kind of peaks at our, at, our, at our vanity and our self-preservation and our self-promotion. We like to be hardworking because we want other people to think we're hardworking. And because of that, then we're, we're more valuable, Right? There's a, there's a way to be hardworking and there's a way to use that hashtag that, that's really vain. And that's more about us and our abilities and our strength than it is about God's. And if we'll let this passage do what it's supposed to this morning, um, it'll be a real corrective for us. And the answer isn't then, you know, hey, be passive, be lazy, don't be a rolling stone. It's no, no, let's, let's get moving. We need strength to love our neighbors. We need strength to fight addiction. We need strength to believe the gospel, but it's got to come from God. So you use that hashtag, that's fine. If, if the hashtag, what's closely associated to it is this, it's, it's, it's God is my strength and he is my help and he is my love. If that's what I mean by, yeah, that green bill, if that's what I mean by why I do what I do and why I work so hard, it's because God strengthens me, then this is me not getting in your way. Then cut loose. Um... I've already mentioned this is a prayer. It's a prayer by Paul, and it's, and it's situated right in the middle of this letter. And typically at DPC, what we'll do is we'll preach through books. And so it's, it's really kind of hard just to kind of jump in in the middle of, of a passage here and, and do it justice. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to spend the next two weeks in this prayer. Um, Paul asks for four things for his church, for this, these readers in Ephesus. He asked God for four things, and we're going to look at just the first two this morning and the next two uh, next Sunday. The first two things he asked for of God for this church is that they would know the strength of God and that they would know the love of God. Know the strength of God and the love of God. Let's jump in first with the strength of God. Where does Paul say that? Look again at verse 16. We'll just look at the first part of this verse. Paul says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. Paul says the church in Ephesus is supposed to be strengthened through the power of the Father. What I want to suggest this morning is that this is not just a nice theological premise or idea that that Paul is, is unique in suggesting or writing that this, this idea that our Christian strength comes from outside of us is a foundational biblical truth. In other words, if we don't get this into our mojo, into our system, we are spiritually anemic. God is our source of strength. Think about what happens right after the Exodus. Moses has led God's people out of Pharaoh's land, all right? And they've walked in between the Red Sea, these walls of water on dry ground, 
And when all the Israelites get to the other side, when everyone is safe, what happens to the walls of water? They close in on Pharaoh's army. And so in a matter of just a few seconds, they are delivered from the hand of their enemies. And what now stands before them but open ground, open field, no enemy behind them. They've got some enemies ahead of them, but God says, I'm going to fight for you. Open field in front of them to run and to pursue the promised land. And what does Moses do in in, in verse 2 of chapter 15, immediately after the Exodus? What does he say? He sings this song of praise. The Lord is my strength and my song. Hannah was a woman without a child, and she prayed to God to grant her an offspring, and God heard her prayers. And in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, she has this great song of praise. Listen to what she says. She mimics Paul. She says, the Lord will give strength to his king. The Lord will. He's the king's source of strength. David, after he was delivered from the hand of, of, of Saul, in Psalm 18, verse 1, says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. Peter will even go on to say in the New Testament when he's talking to the church about serving and speaking, we're supposed to do so by the strength that God supplies. This idea of of, of there being an outside source that's supposed to strengthen believers, this is not just a Pauline thought. This is Old Testament. This is New Testament. This is man. This is woman. This is young. This is old. If we don't get this, we are in great trouble. It is God who strengthens his people. And if David, if Hannah, if Paul, if Peter, if they needed to be strengthened by God, then don't we as well? We do. Um, As Presbyterians, we're kind of known for splitting hairs. Sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it's not a good thing. But let's split hairs this morning. What I've suggested up until this point is is this, that God is our strength. And and maybe you've thought about this before, but how does God actually do that? Like, what are God's means, his method? How does God actually go about strengthening his people, his believers? I mean, are these like these invisible, you know, cables that when he presses the button, suddenly we're just filled with supernatural energy? That's not it. When you listen to the words of Moses or David in these verses, they're, um, they're a little bit more accurate in, in what Paul's trying to get at in, in this prayer. It's that it's okay, and it's good to say that the Lord strengthens us. That's true. It's actually better and more biblical to say the Lord is our strength. It's good to say that the Lord strengthens us. That's, that's true. But how does he strengthen us? He strengthens us with himself. He makes you and I mighty by giving us the Almighty. You see that? So why are we strong? How are we strong? It's because God has given us his very self. And maybe you already picked up on that in this passage, and this doesn't happen a lot in Scripture, but did you notice that all three members of the Trinity are present in this prayer? Paul references the Father, he references the Son, and he references the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is one God, manifested in three persons who are equal in substance and power and glory. That's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they're all in this passage. So let's, let's start with the Father. What do we learn about him? Look back at verse 16. 
That according to the riches of whose glory? That's the Father's glory. That he may grant you to be strengthened. What Paul tells us is that our Father is rich in glory, in grace, in provision, in power. Um, one of my earliest Christmas memories, a long time ago, I can't remember how old I was. Uh, I remember we were in the parking lot of a, of a hardware store. And I suddenly got this impulse to, you know, I want to buy my dad a Christmas present. So I asked mom and dad, hey, can I go back inside and, 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 and buy dad? Boy, you know, just a present for my dad. My mom probably felt really left out. Um, and I said, can I go back in and buy dad a Christmas present? And in their graciousness, they said, sure, go ahead. But you have to take your sister, Jill, with you. I said, all right. So I got about two steps out the car door and I realized, okay, I, can I borrow some money <laughs> to buy you a present? And in their graciousness, they said, of course. And I got three bucks. And I walked into the hardware store, and I remember it was a, I I bought the only thing I I think I could find for $3, and it was a little brown box, you know, not much bigger than this. And I was proud of that box. I I wrapped it up in, you know, the the paper that it came in, and it kind of hid it in my coat when I got back out to the car. Didn't want Dad to see it. I wanted to stay a surprise. Really proud of myself. Got home, and was going to wrap it and put it under the tree and then realized I have no idea how to wrap a present. So I asked mom, can you wrap this for me? And of course, in her graciousness, she said, of course. So she wrapped it. So when it was done, I got to write the tag. I put, to dad, love Jake. The real question um, that that begs is, well, why did I get to put my name on that tag? I didn't drive myself to the store. I didn't pay for their present. I didn't wrap the present. Why did I get to put my name on that tag. As for the reason that Paul is stating here, it's because you have parents who are rich in glory and provision. Rich. And if you're here this morning and you've done great things for the city of Greenville, great things for your family, you have been generous, you have been sacrificial, that strength And that energy and that provision was given to you by God. He's just letting you put your name on the tag. He drove you. He paid for it. He presented it. He is rich in glory. But is your name on the box? That's what the Father does. Well, what about the Spirit? Look in verse 16. Paul references the power of the Spirit, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power, or your translation may say might, through his Spirit in your inner being. Now, Steph Curry uh, is a basketball player for the Golden State Warriors, I think, pretty sure. And right now, he has uh, the highest percentage of, of free throws that he has made uh, in his career. So right now, of all the guys in the NBA, nobody has a higher percentage of made free throws than Steph Curry. He's at a little over 90%. So that means if he's going to shoot 100 free throws, he'll make 90, 91 of them. Nobody's better than him. Point being, if you want to work on your free throw technique, you would be wise to consult with Steph Curry, right? He's the guy right now to go to because that's his department. That's what he's good at. He's the best at it. But what's the problem? Steph Curry's a big dude. 
He's an important guy. And we're kind of peons, right? We're not really pinging on his radar. What would a guy like him have to do with folks like us? Right? When we start to talk about power, abilities, and strength, the Holy Spirit is kind of the Steph Curry of power. Didn't think you'd hear that in the first sermon out of the bag in 2017, did you? The Holy Spirit is the Steph Curry of power. You can't talk about power, might, and ability without also talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, we've said this before, and let me just say it again because it's worth repeating. What is the Holy Spirit responsible for in Scripture? What is he, what is he known for? He with the Father and the Son were present at creation. He hovered over the waters, over the chaos. And he is responsible, again, with the Father and the Son in creating everything that we see and everything that we enjoy by the word of his power. He made something out of nothing. That is a power we don't understand. That is a power that we do not have. But the Holy Spirit does. Somehow by the power and the ability of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit took the pre-existent Jesus, the Jesus that always was, always is, and always will be, and he, somehow he got that Jesus into the womb of Mary. That is a power we do not understand. And we cannot recreate. Somehow by the power of the Holy Spirit, a dead body, Jesus' dead body that was in the tomb for three days, came back to resurrection life. That is a power we do not understand, nor can we recreate. The Holy Spirit gets credit for that. And here's the great news. What does Paul say about this power, this ability, this person in the Holy Spirit? He says, unlike Steph Curry, you have a better chance of being indwelt and experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit than you do getting help with your free throw from Steph Curry. That should be encouraging you have a greater likelihood of experiencing the power, the limitless power of the Holy Spirit than you do getting help on your free throw from Steph Curry. Paul says this spirit, this power, this ability is inside you as a gift from the Father. So when Paul would go on later to say that you are this empty vessel, you're this jar of clay, yes you are, but you are filled with the Holy Spirit And the implication is this. If we have limitless power within our very bones, our very souls, what can't we do? Right? If the one who raised Jesus from the dead resides inside me, then he can help me love my neighbor. He can help conquer this addiction inside me. He can lift me out of despair. Limitless power, and it's inside you. That should blow our minds. Paul goes on to say, um, Jesus plays a role here too. And I want to kind of leave the first point and jump in with the second. Paul prays that they would know the strength of God, but he prays that they would also know that they are loved by God. What does someone have to do to you or for you for you to say with absolute confidence, that person loves me? That person really cares for me, is out for my best interest. What do they have to say or what do they have to do? Um, If you have extra time this week, uh, I would encourage you to go back to the first part of Ephesians, the first two and a half chapters of this book, and and read through it. 
and read through it with this lens. Notice how many times Paul references or uses the name Jesus or Christ or Jesus Christ. In the first two verses alone, he mentions Jesus three times, and that's just a greeting. One commentator said, if I was, if I was Paul's peer and I was reading this letter, I would stop after this prayer in chapter 3 and ask Paul, like, are you trying to fit Jesus, the name of Jesus, into every sentence? Because it looks like that's what you're trying to do. It's Jesus-rich and Jesus-saturated. And what Paul here is, is explaining is the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is a crude summary. But here are some of the truths he says about Jesus that from the earliest foundations of the world, you have been predestined to be forgiven, to be restored, to receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That the blood of Jesus Christ covers you like the blood of a Passover lamb. And that if you die with him, and if you're forgiven by him, he will raise you into heavenly places with Christ Jesus It's this beautiful work of what Jesus Christ has done for his church, the first two and a half chapters of Ephesians. And then we get to this prayer. And what Paul says here, he uses three words, and I want to kind of focus on these three words as we talk about our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, because of Jesus, we're rooted and we're grounded. So what does that mean? And he says that that Christ dwells in our hearts um, so rooted, grounded, and dwell. What, what do those words mean? Well, rooted, that's a botanical, agricultural term. Um, we got rid of our Christmas tree this week, and I moved it out to the front yard because I spilled the water in the bottom of the basin and had to do all the cleanup, got the needles out of the house. I forgot they left the tree. I'm just sitting in the front yard. And then Thursday came along. We had that big windstorm Thursday, Right? really, really high winds, and now my tree is in a different part of the yard because of the wind. Why did the tree move? It's because it was not rooted. It had no structure. It had no foundation, and so it moved. And so Paul says, God's love for you is like a well-rooted, a well-grounded tree. You are rooted in love, And we're tempted to think, well, maybe that's our love for God, and that couldn't be further than the truth. Hear this. What Paul here is saying is you are rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus Christ, in his work. If you have strong roots, it's because of him. So the reason why the Father is not going to leave you or forsake you or turn his back on you is because of Jesus Christ and because of his love. You're rooted in him, in his love, not yours. Because if we were rooted in our own love for God, we would wax and wane, ebb and flow. But no, it's sure because it's rooted in Jesus Christ. Do you feel the love? He doesn't stop there. He says, but you're also also grounded. And that's an architectural term. And what does that mean? Well, one of you recently, a DPC member, invited Paige and I and the kids over to your house Um, recently, and this is going to sound weird, but my favorite part of the house was the basement, the garage. Because when we got down there, this this house was built a long time ago, and and a time when construction looked a lot different than it does now. When I looked up, and I was looking at the uh, the structure of the floor above us, 
um, I could see the joists. All the joists were exposed. And when you look up in our ceiling, these joists, these metal runners that kind of go up and down the building, that's what holds the roof, the weight of the roof um, on, on top of our building. It keeps those AC units from falling through uh, the ceiling. And I don't know what code is in South Carolina, but joists are supposed to be anywhere from 18 to 22 inches apart. Like, that's the minimum. It can't be less than that. So you have a good, you know, stable floor to stand on. It's a good rule. So we went into this member's basement, and we looked up at the joists, and these joists weren't 18, 22 inches apart. They were 12 inches apart. Closer than they had to be, which meant that it cost more money, took more time, it was more expensive to do it this way. But then my thought was this. I want to walk back upstairs. And I want to kind of do that, you know, bounce on the ball of your feet test. Because there are certain places in our house, if you kind of jump and land heel first, like the silverware rattle. There was no bounce in this floor. No squeak, no give. You did the little bounce and it was sure. It was steady. And Paul here is saying in this passage, the same is true of the Father's love for you. You're well-grounded. But it's not in your work. It's not in your ability. It's not in your building. It's nothing you've done. It's because it's well-grounded in the work of Jesus Christ. He has secured that for you because it's built on him, because his love is rooted and grounded in him. You can stand, and you can be sure, and you will know that the ground will not fail because it's not built on you. It's on him. Paul says this, is that Christ dwells in our hearts. He uses that word dwell. And when you look at this word in the Greek, it means to take up residence. And there's a word that Paul likes to use that kind of means in our our translation, like lodging. And that's a word that kind of communicates something that's temporary. If we were to take up lodging somewhere, that kind of sounds like we're only going to do this for a short amount of time, right? Right? And in this passage, in talking about Jesus Christ, Paul does not use that word for lodging. He uses the word for dwelling, to inhabit, to live. It carries with it this connotation of permanence. Lodging is temporary. If you're going to dwell somewhere, you're going to stay there. In other words, Christ's love and involvement with you is not like an Airbnb. It's not temporary. It's permanent. It's never-ending. And now you start to kind of feel the love. A father who's rich, a spirit who is limitless in power, and a Christ who is going to dwell with us permanently? It's starting to sound like good news, isn't it? It is. I want to close with this. Um, uh, Two more thoughts. Uh, First, to um, the insiders. Maybe you've been in the church your whole life. Maybe you're a member here. But if, if what Paul is saying is true, as he kind of flips open the hood and says, here's what's going on in the Christian life, you're being strengthened by God outside of yourself. And you're being loved, rooted, grounded in this heavenly love. And by the way, that has not been secured by you. That's also been secured outside of you through the work of Jesus Christ. If that's true, this should produce something in you. He says that's Humility. Where do we see that in this passage? Look back at verse 14. It's here. It's subtle, but did you pick up on it? 
Paul says at the very beginning, for this reason, he's talking about the work of Jesus Christ, for that reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, this isn't just a traditional Christian practice. To kneel outwardly is, is to communicate an inward reality, which is humility, meekness before God. And what we don't know is, is that the typical posture for prayer of Jews is, is actually to stand. It's not to sit. It's not to kneel. But it's to stand. In Luke 18, when Jesus gives the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, both of them are standing. If you go to the Wailing Wall and watch modern Jews pray at the Wailing Wall, they're rocking and they're standing. They're not kneeling. They're standing. But in this passage, like in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus kneels as he prays before the Father, like Solomon did at the dedication of the temple, he kneeled before the Father. When you realize that God is your strength, he's the one that got you through the Red Sea, he's the one that delivered me from the hand of Saul, he is the one who strengthens me, and he's the one who has secured a love for me, it creates this, this posture of humility inside of you, a God-given humility. Now, let's remember who this man Paul is. This is no peon. This is a man who had a theological ed- education that, that far surpasses mine. Probably before the time he was a teenager, he had books of the Bible memorized. Not verses, not chapters, not catechisms. Books of the Bible memorized. Went to the best schools. He would be a man that you would love to have your daughter marry because he was so upright. But he did not have one thing, and that was humility. All right? And then something happened on the road. The Lord broke in. The Lord opened up his head and said, you think this has been your strength? It's not. It's mine. You think you can root and ground yourself in love before the Father? Good luck. That's got to come through me. And he offers Paul grace. And so how does he begin this prayer? In this posture of humility. This is why I bow before the Father. As great as you think I am, as powerful as you think I am, as wise as you think I am, I'm weak, just like you. I need something outside of me to strengthen me. I need someone to secure the Father's love for me because I can't do that myself. It creates humility. If you know Jesus Christ, may that be said of you too. But I'm thinking about you this morning here, if you've, maybe you haven't been to church on a regular basis, and maybe this is the first time you're, you're hearing the gospel. You're hearing the good news. I want to point out one word to you this morning, and it's in verse 17. It reads this, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's a word, you know, maybe, you know, you don't have to be in the church to have heard that word. We throw that word out a lot. What does that mean? Maybe you've heard of the children's um, storybook writer. His name is Roald Dahl. He wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, uh, The Big Friendly Giant, a uh, movie just recently came out uh, about that. He wrote a book, and it was his last book called The Men Pins. And the very last line of the very last story um, says something very profound. He says this. He says, those that, that do not believe in magic, who don't believe in the supernatural, if you don't believe in magic, you'll never see it. If you don't believe in magic, you will never see it. 
And in some ways, Paul is saying the same thing before us this morning. It's this. It sounds scandalous. It doesn't register in our head because we go, nothing I know operates like that. What the gospel says is, is you do not have strength. What we all share in common in this room is we are all weak. And there are no varying degrees of weakness. We are all weak. And we need a strength outside of us. And the gospel says, the Lord himself will be that strength. The Almighty will fill you with power in your inner being. Well, what about my relationship with the Father? Does he love me? What Paul says is, yeah, he does, but it's because of nothing you've done. Jesus has secured that. Now, if you rest in him and his work, it's as if the Father calls you son or daughter, and it's as if Christ calls you brother or sister. Jesus would go on later to say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You don't have to be strong. You don't have to secure the Father's love. Jesus does that for you. The only people who will see that supernatural power, that strength, that magic, are people who believe it. That is an easy yoke and a light burden. You don't have to be strong. You don't have to make yourself lovable. That's not a beauty pageant. Christ has already done that for you. All you have to do is believe. And that is good news. And my hope for you, um, I don't get paid more if you convert. My joy is, is made complete in a lot of ways, but I wish that for you. Maybe for the first time, I want faith in Jesus Christ. I hope you hear that, and I hope you'll do that. Let's pray together. Father, our, our rational minds want to kind of dissect this, this good news, add something to it, because uh, we don't like hearing that we're weak or that we're vain. But it's the truth, and thank you for not pulling punches uh, with us. But don't leave us in the depth. Remind us of the power that we have because you've already loved us with an everlasting love. You've already filled your people with your spirit, the one who has limitless power. Help us to get off the hamster wheel because your love for us is secured in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We know that. Help us to believe it in our heart of hearts. And we ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.